Welcome to Taiwan Report News Brief, news analysis and context from Taichung, Taiwan. I'm Donovan Smith. All right, this is part two of a, three, of a three-part series, so be sure to listen to part one first, um, and then continue on to part three after this. All right, continuing on from part one. In Nathan Bado's post, again, I'll remind you, it's linked to as the 2020 surge in youth turnout as a must-read on our site, report.tw, he has lots of charts and graphs. After one, he notes the following, quote, According to this, there were about 1.6 million extra votes in 2020 because of higher turnout. These were highly concentrated among the younger voters. In 2016, people 39 and under only made up 29.9% of the electorate, but this group accounted for 56.6%, about 912,000, of the extra turnout. As a result, the share of the under-39 group increased to 32.8% of the electorate in 2020. Nearly a million extra votes seems like a lot. End quote. Yep, sure does. A million extra votes, definitely. Now he goes on to crunch the numbers, comparing what the vote would have looked like if the voting had been the same as 2016 turnout looking at how it may have impacted the concurrent legislative election and much more worth your time to check out. In the end, he notes that because the election was such a landslide, President Tsai probably didn't need those votes, but they did likely tip some legislative seats and because the president's margin of victory was even higher than in 2016, it changed the narrative. Now, it's important to note that younger voters face impediments to voting in Taiwan. Often they are studying or working away from where their household registration is, so they must take time off and bear the expense and hassle of returning to wherever they came from in order to vote. So why the huge disparity in youth turnout between 2016 and 2020? I think the short answers are existential fear and exams. In 2016, the CEC set the election date the day after university exam week meaning there was only a narrow, crowded window for students to get home and vote. Some alleged, post-Sunflower Movement, that the Ma government did this intentionally to suppress the youth vote. Whether that is actually the case, or the CEC chose the date for other reasons, I can't say. On the existential dread, we have to first cast our minds back to the run-up to the 2016 election. In March of 2014, the KMT, on behalf of the Ma administration, was attempting to ram through a trade deal in services with China in the legislature using dubious tactics. Alarmed at this development, protesters gathered outside the legislative Yuan and eventually ended up charging in and occupying it. Wang Jinping, whose formal title was the president of the executive Yuan, but normally in English is referred to as the speaker, happened to be in a vicious internal KMT war with then-President Ma Ying-jeou. It is also widely rumored that he, among with many Taiwanese KMT members, were also against the trade pact. Being the head of this branch of government, he decided to allow the protesters to stay. Taiwan reports Sean Su among them. Protesters also attempted to storm the executive Yuan, but were violently rebuffed. In the streets, hundreds of thousands came out in support of the protesters in the legislature. Eventually, the sunflower became the signifier of support, which is actually a play on English and Mandarin. The Mandarin name for it was Taianghua, 
which is a literal translation of the English name for the flower. But the Mandarin also sounds like a call for transparency by exposing something to the sun. They accused the KMT of using black box tactics to try and ram through the, uh, the trade pact. And this is a reference to that. I absolutely love Taiwanese political culture, which is so frequently full of humor, puns, and double meanings. Now, the movement is frequently referred to as a student movement, which isn't really accurate. People of all ages participated. It is true, however, that it resonated strongly with younger people. In many ways, the movement solidified the Taiwanese identity for younger generations that grew up in the democratic era. It brought together those whose families had been here for hundreds or thousands of years with those whose families came over in 1949. It was a truly remarkable movement that brought huge numbers of people out in support of being pro-Taiwan. It's worth noting that many referred to it as anti-China in the media, but the emphasis was more pro-Taiwan than anti-China. It was sparked, however, by fears of further Chinese encroachment into the economy. The occupation, which lasted three weeks, was orderly and very civil, and money was raised to pay for any damages caused. It was also highly successful. The trade pact was killed off. So, going into the 2016 election, younger voters were on a high. The threat of further Chinese in, in economic encroachment was successfully beaten back, and polling showed that Tsai Ing-wen would, was easily going to trounce the KMT's Eric Chu, or Zhu Liluan. It's also worth noting that while the younger generation had turned sharply against the KMT at this point, Eric Chu himself wasn't widely hated personally. Also, at the time, there was a lot of talk of the KMT collapsing. In fact, I was the first one to write that and have a translation run in Mandarin in Storm Media. About two months after my articles came out, a major news magazine ran basically the same thing as a cover story giving it wider legitimacy than just some random foreigner, and suddenly all the TV talk shows seemingly could talk of nothing else. My article is almost all still true today. The KMT is still largely unelectable at the national level, but I made two mistakes, one of which is disappointing and the other of which I don't feel bad about at all. The disappointment was that I had thought at the time that a new opposition to the DPP would naturally arise and rise fast, like the new party and People's First Party both did when they first appeared. At one point, the People's First Party was more popular than the KMT and had huge representation in the legislature. However, turns out attempts at new parties haven't been anywhere near as successful this time. Partly, that is due to the way the legislature has been elected after 2005. Part of that is the surprising discipline in the DPP that kept knowledgeable, high-profile potential de defectors to basically zero, and part of it has been fecklessness on the part of the new party leaders. The other thing I got wrong is I predicted that the KMT would struggle in the 2018 local elections. The reason I don't feel bad about that mistake is because I qualified that statement in the article by saying, unless someone like Wang Jinping was able to unite the factions or a bolt out of the blue populist candidate appeared. In fact, in 2018, both of those things happened. 
Wang united the factions and got behind Daniel Han Guoyu, who was then a relatively unknown head of the Agricultural Marketing Association in Taipei, fond of posing with cabbages. And a former law- lawmaker whose claim to fame in the 1990s was having punched out then fellow lawmaker and future president Chen Suibian and hospitalizing him. All right, this is the end of part two. Be sure to check out, check out part three um, <clears throat> where we uh, we'll wrap this up. So um, be sure to hit like and subscribe and share it with your friends. And, um, and of course, if you're on YouTube, hit that little notification bell. And of course, we very much appreciate everyone's support uh, as, as patrons on patreon.com slash Taiwan Report. This has been brought to you by the Taiwan Report. For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw. Hey, I'm the Taiwan girl. I like my Taiwan girl.